Welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Jared Saavedra. Well, as I mentioned this morning, the title of our message is God Has Not Forgotten. Our memories are powerful tools. The fact that we can remember things because they are they can transport us back in time, if you will. Some people have extremely powerful memories where they're able to remember the page of a certain book they've read and what that page says and where on the page um, it's said. Or they can remember phone numbers really well or they can remember faces really well. I'm not like that. I actually have to look down on a regular basis to see what, what t-shirt I'm wearing. But that's, you know, that's the power of people remembering. But think about the other way, the power of being remembered. How meaningful it is to, quote unquote, be remembered by someone. And I think especially at this cultural moment that we're in, the power of being remembered, just the fact that even though we're, we're sheltering in place here in California for the moment and the, the church um, is unable to meet together, those text messages or those emails or those phone calls that come in from friends and family saying, how are you doing? Are you okay? Are you still maybe struggling with that? Or maybe someone just recently remembered your birthday that you didn't expect to and it was a huge, meaningful event for you. That's really the, the essence of what you're buying for someone when you buy them a greeting card. It's, it's a token to say, I remember you. You're meaningful to me. And that's special to someone. But let's consider the role of remembrance in Scripture. So many of the judgments that God's people endured were because they did not remember the Lord. They forgot Him. And it's not that they forgot facts about him or they, they forgot his name or they, they forgot who he was. I'm sure if you were given, uh, if you were giving these people a quiz, the um, people of Israel a quiz on what God did in the past or who he is, they probably could have answered the factual um, details of who God is. But their forgetfulness of God were lapses of the heart. They were lapses of faithfulness at a time when, when they were distracted at, at best, but really idolatrous at worst, and they were under judgment. But as we're reminded in this chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 49, we're reminded that God does not forget. In fact, we might even say, if we want to be technical, God doesn't have to go back and remember because he never forgets anything. If we remember something, it means you know, maybe we forgot it at one point. God knows everything that has ever happened. God knows everyone's names and their favorite color. But most importantly, when we see in Scripture, when God remembers someone, it's usually indicating a, a dose of mercy and compassion. And that's what actually we see here in Isaiah chapter 49. Not this, that God remembers who they were, what they look like, but that God remembers them. And in his mind, he's thinking compassion and mercies and faithfulness. And also, most importantly, God is introducing us, um, the prophet Isaiah right here is introducing us as well to a specific 
servant, a specific individual. And so we meet this individual, this person that Isaiah introduces in this chapter called the servant of the Lord. And this servant God sends to show us, to show God's people that he has not forgotten about them, that he is still faithful to them. And that's what we're going to read about here in Isaiah chapter 49. So let's go ahead and read the first few verses of this chapter, about the first half. Read with me, please, in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I have said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. We'll continue on. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. So what is going on in this text right here? Well, first of all, if you start to understand very little about the text, you understand that it's good news that God is giving his people. It's news of mercy and compassion. But you'll notice that something hap- is happening here. In the first couple verses, I- Isaiah the prophet invokes and he starts to say, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention to me. And he starts describing himself and you realize that I don't think he's talking about Isaiah. I don't think Isaiah is talking about himself. And you realize the persona he's taking on is a much larger than life person. 
He's taking on a different speaking role, if you will. He's, he's playing a part, and he's playing the part of a person simply known as, you'll see in verse 3, my servant. God has declared this person to be his servant. And so we, we're introduced to someone named the Lord's servant. And we see various characteristics of him. We see that his mouth is like a sharp sword, and in the, the shadow um, of his hand he held me. And so we're actually going to look at um, three characteristics of the Lord's servant and how, as we begin to understand who he is and what's his role in God's plan of salvation, restoration, and redemption. So, first of all, we see the, the marks of God's servant. Number one, that he's set apart by the Lord. This servant is called straight from the mother, his mother's womb. And his sole mission from before birth is to accomplish God's special, specific promises. We see that in the various stories, maybe of the, of the prophets. We see that in, in, in Isaiah or especially Jeremiah, where the prophets are saying, I was called even before I was born. When I was in the womb, before I was even formed in the womb, God knew me and he called me to the special purpose. And so it's similar to that. But there's also something shrouded in, in mystery about this servant. He's reserved by God, if you will, in a little, in a quiver, in God's quiver, reserved for a very specific purpose. Notice that he made me, in verse 2, was Isaiah speaking as the servant, he made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid away. So it's like God has this special arrow in this servant that he's going to use for to hit a specific target and to reach a specific, um, a distinct aim that God has in mind. I was reminded of um, I can't remember the character now, but it's in, it's in the book The Hobbit where, I think it's Bard, it's Bard, yeah, he has a special black arrow that is passed down through his family generations and he end up, ends up using that black arrow to kill Smaug. It, it's kind of like that, like I have this one specific arrow with a very specific purpose and I'm not going to pull it out until it's time, until it's the perfect, absolute time. And so what we, we really see right here about the servant, that he is sanctified. Sanctified, we usually think about as, you know, oh, it's, it's holy, it's, it's being righteous, it's being a good person. But sanctified is really meaning that God has set this person apart for a specific purpose. For those who are believers, for those who are Christians, God has really sanctified. He set them apart for a specific purpose. But how much more is this particular servant being set apart for this ser service? And you notice that this servant is perfectly obedient to the call that God has given to him. And God has given him a very difficult call. Because if you notice in verse 4, the servant is saying, I have labored in vain. He's saying, I've spent my strength for nothing in vain. He's like, this, this work I'm doing is the Lord's work, and it feels futile. Nevertheless, he says, yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense is with my God. What does the ministry of the servant look like? Well, it's, it's frustrating. And there's a bit of a dialogue here where he's complaining to God that I'm doing this work and I'm doing the Lord's work and yet I'm getting nowhere. And yet God does not freak out or do, he does not rethink the role of the servant. He does not cease using the servant. In fact, he doubles down on his efforts. He commends the servant and expands even on the servant's role. So this is how we see that right here in, in verse 5, 
where in verse 5 and 6, where God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Israel and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That was his original goal, apparently. But God says, here, I have a ba- bigger role for you to play. And he says, I'm going to make you as a light for the nations that my salvation has reached for the ends of the earth. And so God has expanded the role. And we're going to look at the servant's role right now in, in, in a little bit more detail. But we should remember that um, the, the extra marks of the servant we should see that God is, is ascribing to him is not only that he's set apart, but in verse 5 we also see that he's honored by the Lord and he's strengthened by the Lord to do this work. It's a special work that God has given him. And um, just before we go on, just if you have you know, a... a a work, a calling in the Lord to, to serve the Lord. Just remember how important that work is to the Lord and how important that vocation that God is calling you, even if it's not necessarily church-related, even if it's um, going and doing something else, if it's, if it's running a shop, if it's uh, a plumbing or if it's writing or if it's um, uh, being an electrician, God calls us to very specific vocations to glorify Himself in. And I simply say that because right now we're in, we're in a crisis of work where the government has said, this is essential, but this is non-essential. But in reality, all the work that the Lord has given us to do that we can do in, in honoring the government and honoring Him, that's really valuable work to the Lord. So those who are maybe questioning, did I choose the right career path or did I do this? Whatever you do, that's, that you see yourself doing in, in response to God's calling on your life is really honorable to the Lord, and the Lord respects that. But in this case, from the servant's case, this is really special work. This is work that only the servant apparently can do, and God has reserved these particular roles to the servant's responsibility. So God has expanded the servant's responsibilities. Even after the servant has kind of been frustrated and a little bit complains that his work is not exactly um, changing, doing many changes. But we see a little bit more about the role that God has called him to. And number one, we see that um, in verse three, actually, we see a little bit of the role, is that God has called this servant to represent Israel. God has called this servant to represent Israel and to carry on the role of Israel. Now, Israel, of course, is a nation. It, was a dis- it is and it was a distinct nation of people who are called by the Lord. So they comprise, if you will, a nation of servants. So these people really are the servants of the Lord. But yet, remember last week in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 1, we, God is talking about Israel, and he's saying that, these people who are supposed to be a nation of servants to me, who are supposed to serve me, they've gone to other idols. And God describes them like this, that they swear by the name of the Lord at the end of the verse, and they confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. God's saying they're bad representations of me. They're bad servants, if you will. And so God seems to grant this servant kind of this status of representing Israel. And if you remember before, Israel was a nation. It was a person. It was the other name that, it was the name that God gave Jacob, the patriarch. So if you will, God's making this person almost like the status of a patriarch with the, if you will, the the power of attorney and the authority to act on behalf of Israel in order to fulfill the, the service that God wants to do 
in, in the role of his servant. And he will continue to fill these other roles as we go on. His, his other role, other than representing Israel, his other role is interesting. It's that to, he's bringing around the restoration of Israel. We, we already read that in verse 6 right there. So the role is taking this servant position. It, it's almost like a prophetic position to call people and to restore them back to God. And certainly it's a prophetic role in that case, but you realize it's so much more expansive to that as God expands this, continues to expand his role in verse 6 that he's not only doing this for Israel, but he's doing this to bring God's salvation to the rest of the world. And he's doing this through the illumination of his word. He's saying, I'll make you a light for the nations, a guide light, that they would see the salvation of the Lord and they would realize that this is not just a God of Israel, of a specific country, but the God of the entire world. And we can find salvation in this God. So this servant has a huge role. And not only that, the other servant's other role is in verse 8, as we read, God says, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land and to apportion the desolate heritages. This servant himself is going to be a covenant with the people. The covenant that God is going to make is somehow going to relate specifically to the servant. And not only that, the role of the servant continues on, and it's to also, in verse, verses 9 through 13, uh, we see these details and we see that the servant is going to bring compassion and mercy to God's people. And we see very specific issues um, or very specific aspects of this ministry of compassion and mercy. We see, first of all, that the compassion that the servant is going to show includes the, the um, returning or the release of captives, of prisoners. Now, to be certain, these aren't people, you know, this is not like a case in, the, in some states where they're letting out prisoners because of, of the pandemic and stuff like that. It's, it's not anything like that, but these are rather God's people who are captive and being oppressed. And they're, they're, the servant is going has the role of calling these people out of these prisons to stop being oppressed by their enemies. Notice um, Isaiah um, 42 verse 7, a few chapters before here, the it also describes a servant of the Lord, very much the same roles as this servant. And God says this person is going to bring the prisoners out from the dungeon. We also see that in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, where the Spirit of the Lord is upon the speaker. And it's almost like this role of a servant again. And his role is right here to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. And so we think, why exactly is, is God obsessed with releasing prisoners from captivity? Because the imprisonment of God's people is really a, a constant concern on the mind of the Lord. Who might think why that is? Well, it's, to some extent, it's the prisoners, people locked away, that are most at risk to be forgotten, if you will. And God is using the servant to say, you might be locked away, you might be um, held captive away from your family and away from your friends in the deep, dark prison, but I have not forgotten you. And that's a picture of the, if you will, the spiritual captivity 
of the, the nation of Israel, of God's people, that they are held captive by their idolatry, they're held captive by sins, they're not, but they're not only the victims of it, they're the, the perpetrators of it as well. And maybe at this point, because of the judgment, they feel that God has forgotten them, but God is merciful and He's compassionate. And He's sending the servant to say, I have not forgotten you in prison. We see this theme throughout Scripture. We see in Hebrews 13, verse 3, we're called to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Really, contextually there, it's, it's especially the brothers and the sisters in the Lord, those people in the church who maybe have been imprisoned with their faith. We see that in cases all over the, the world. We see that in, in China and North Korea where, where Christianity is outlawed, is completely true Christianity is illegal and people are being, thrown, are being thrown in prison. And those believers really have to remember that God is with them. And we're called to, to remind them and to continually pray for them and to not forget them. How dark it must be in these sort of prisons in those times. I'm not, don't think of a prison as like those prisons with the exercise uh, machines and, you know, the, the TV and the uh, Netflix and stuff like that. Those, those prisons in Sweden. Don't think of that. Think of these prisons as just a dungeon where there's only maybe a trap door where they let you have food and there's no light and you feel like you've been forgotten by God. I think of the, um, the French word for uh, dungeon that they have, which is oubliette, and it comes from a root word to say, it comes from a root word that means simply to forget, that you put this person in a dungeon to forget about them. But even if God's people are trapped in their captive in this way, even if no one else sees them, everyone else has forgotten about them, God says, I remember you. I remember you and I will deliver you. And so this is, a huge role that the, the servant plays. But also we see some other roles that he plays in this ministry of mercy and compassion. We see that the, the rest of the demonstrations of mercy are through the sustaining or providing sustaining power and provision and showing, just not hands-on, um, showing the compassion of God. And remember that this is the role, really, that Jesus plays for us is to, to be that compassionate arm of God. God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to show us mercies and compassion, to show us the true heart of God, that it's not all pure judgment, but rather it's flee from judgment so you can run into the arms of God, the compassionate arms of God who is standing and He's waiting to show you mercies and He's waiting to forgive you of these things. Revelation chapter 7, verses 16 through 17 um, actually quote this passage in Isaiah 49 in reference to the compassion and the mercies that Christ will show to us in the new heavens and the new earth. It says this, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of their throne will, in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So we realize this is a massive role for the servant of the Lord. And it's a huge undertaking. But God has this great news to show His people about His servant that He's going to send to restore them to Himself. And yet, 
even though, in spite of that news, the people of God are still morose. They're still despairing. Look at verse 14 right here, where, where God has to take extra steps to convince them of the verity of his promises of mercies. In verse 14, we read, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. It continues in verse 15, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes and see. As they gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them on all as an ornament. You shall bind them as a bride does. So God's next step in introducing, he introduces the servant, he tells them the role of the servant, but he has to take an extra step to convince people who are so disheartened by their current state. He takes an extra step to convince them of this good news, that this is good news, because they've lost all hope. And this great news, to, to, to this great news, they respond simply with dismissal. Oh, no, that's not true. The Lord has forgotten us. The Lord has forgotten me. And it doesn't sound necessarily like humility. Don't think it's that, oh, you know, I'm too pious, I'm too sinful. It's actually simply disbelief of God's good intentions towards them. They have, if you will, they have a wrong theology about, the, about God, and they don't believe that God is merciful. They don't believe that His heart is tender. They don't believe that He's ready to forgive them so quickly. They believe that He's forgotten them. And so Israel has proven themselves not only to be forgetful, but also just openly defiant in the way they are thinking about God, to which God call, try, attempts to call them, call to memory the goodness of regular people. For instance, the goodness of a mother. And we'll, we'll see this right here, that he gives an example of a mother forgetting her nursing child. Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. It's like even a mother knows that this baby needs some help. And even if a mother should forget, God doesn't forget. So God is trying to reassure them by this good news, by giving these daily examples. And isn't that what we need today? Just the assurance in this way of just regular examples of compassion, of good news, isn't that why, you know, in the, in the time of this pandemic, we have stories, we have that YouTube series, Some Good News, or we have other stories about the good news people have um, done for each other. And the mistake, though, that people make in looking at these things is saying, oh, I thought humanity was bad, and I saw them do a good thing, and now they know they're good. No. We should look at Scripture and see how God uses the examples of people being good to each other to show that these people are good, by even though they're deep down bad people, that they can have some good, and therefore, how much more good is God in our lives? That's the, t um, that's the issue we should learn from that. And if you've lost sight, if you, 
if you've lost sight of the goodness of God, if you've forgotten that He is a tender, merciful, compassionate God, even at the same time that He is a um, judgment-bringing, um, uh, terrifying, holy God, if you forget both those truths, then really you've forgotten the whole picture of God. And if you can't remember the goodness of God, you need to relearn the goodness of God, which is the role of Isaiah 49 to remind them of this. There are many who have, if you will, tried God and they say, oh, I didn't really see goodness. Or, or they've tried God and they say, oh, well, it's, it's too many rules or anything like that. My question is, have they really tasted the sweet news of the gospel? Have they really tasted the true nature of God? Because once you understand the goodness of God, Paul would say in Romans chapter 2, that actually leads a per person to repentance, to, to devote their entire life to God, to, to learn of his goodness. And so Isaiah is adapting his language to say, here's an example of regular, banal, commonplace human goodness. How much better is a God of love? So he talks about the mother and the nursing child. And he also talks, he gives us another word picture um, right here, which is that, the, that God has engraved them on the palms of his hands, and that the, their walls, even though their walls are knocked down and destroyed, that the city has been invaded, their walls are continually before God, that he pictures them in this way fondly, and he remembers them fondly. And so all this is attempting to show us the truth that God is good, that God gives good gifts. And that's what Scripture tells us elsewhere, isn't it? In Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus is telling us, um, he's giving the example of a, a parent, if their child is hungry, they don't give them a scorpion. This is literally what he says. If a child says, I'm hungry, they don't say, I have some bread right here, but I'll give you a scorpion. No, any parent, as bad as they are, are going to say, here's the bread. That's a simple thing. And Jesus uses that to say, in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, he says, if you then, who are deep down evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask, ask Him? And also on the, the subject of God being a Heavenly Father, and a father who is tender towards us, we see in Psalm 103, verses 13 through 14, God says this, or the psalmist says this, um, and God speaks through the psalmist, but as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. God remembers us. God remembers who we are, and he remembers to be compassionate to us. And in so much that he doesn't have to, but he's making a mark on his own hands to remember us by, so that we're continually on his mind. The type of marking that's referenced right here in verse 16 is the kind of marking that usually indicate, indicates the marking of a slave to show ownership by his master. But God, if you will, reverses it. And God shows that he is almost bound to his people, if you will. But it's not by external coercion. No one told God that he had to bind himself to this people. God who is larger and more um, vast than any galaxy or universe in the omniverse. God who is bigger than we can imagine somehow bounds, binds himself into a contract, if you will, a covenant with 
a small group of people who was unfaithful to him. God doesn't do this out of external coercion, but he does this out of his own loving, tender-hearted character. And in good times and in bad times, God is saying that he is faithful to his people. And so this is all to say that the servant's role of Israel, or the servant's role as Israel, quote-unquote, he's, he's representing Israel, is to not to say that the servant has supplanted or replaced the, the people of God, that God is saying, I'm going to focus my attention on the servant. No, the servant's role is to bring these people back into the recognition that God is faithful to them. I love the words of the hymn um, by Augustus Toplady. How's that for a name, Augustus Toplady? But I love the hymn um, by him, which is called The Debtor to Mercy Alone, where he says, My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Here, God is saying, I have your marks on my hands. They're, they're indelible. And they're never going to leave me because I'm eternally bound to you. Where did this come from? Where did this grace come from? But really, that's what Christ does for us when He makes a covenant with us of His own body and His own blood and the, ha the hands that were pierced by the nails that nailed Him to the cross. He still has those marks in heaven. Notice when John goes to heaven in Revelation, he sees, you know, if you will, the, the Lamb, which represents Christ, and he says the Lamb still has wounds. So in heaven, Jesus rose from the dead bodily and is in heaven, still bearing those marks in which he made a covenant with his people to say, I will never leave you. How indelible, how permanent is that grace of God? And God not only remembers them, but as we see again in in verses um, 16 through 18, that God remembers them in a loving way, in a way that shows them fully restored and functional as a city. And the restoration, you'll, you'll notice, there, it comes swiftly and in great numbers. And he says in verse 17, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. So the builders are coming in at the beginning of the verse, the destroyers are leaving, and you people are being restored. And so God is saying, lift up your eyes. Lift up the eyes of faith and see the goodness of God toward you. Because, at the end of verse 18, you shall bind all these things that are good. All these, all these ways, all these signs of restoration, you shall bind them all as an ornament. You shall bind them as a bride does. So this is the God's beautification plan for His people. He is going to make them beautiful once again. He's going to restore them fully. That's God saying, I'm, I'm committed to you, I'm faithful to you, and I will restore you. And we'll continue on with the rest of the chapter, and we, we'll begin to see God's complete restoration. So verses 19 through 26 say this, Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now will, you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, This place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say to your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus 
says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hands to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust off your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Israel. So, the point of all this is simply to say that God will bring restoration to them. So much restoration, if you will, that people are going to say, this city's too small for us. This house is too small for us. And then they're going to say, where did all these kids come from? Like, there, there, there's kids coming out that God is bringing if, seemingly out of nowhere. And God's going to say, these kings over there, they're going to be your foster parents. All those, all those family members you might have lost during this time of loss and judgment, God will restore in so many different ways. So this is complete reversal, and it's complete retribution. And God gives um, another illustration in verse 24 about the believability of this whole transformation. And it's not an illustration to show that, oh, this is like that, but it's actually an illustration that God is using to say, this is not like that. So, for instance, with the mother, he's saying God is like the mother who cares for a child, but better. Verse 24 is saying, can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captive of a tyrant be rescued? In verse 25, it says, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. So, so God is saying right here, you know this usual thing? Well, based on my promises over here, I'm going to make this usual thing completely turn around because of who I am. So this is not like the dealings of the world. People who are oppressed don't always get delivered. They don't often get delivered. In fact, they rarely get delivered because this world is a fallen world and people are sinful and yet God will release them from the hand of the oppressor. This is showing us the glory of God's kingdom. The great reversals that will take place at the end of the age when God brings everything to justice. Justice is usually a word that's, that's played around with too much and we have different kinds of justice. Justice for him, justice for her. And they're usually differing things. But God will direct perfect justice and he will release the people who are oppressed from the oppressor. He will make that wrong. He will take that wrong and he will make that right. He will take that thing that's unholy and he will um, judge it and make it holy. And God will make everything right in the world. And this shows us what God's doing in his kingdom. And what we have to look forward to at the end of all things when God fully restores everything. But this is all under the role of God's servant to show them once again that he is faithful and that he is committed to them. That God will pick a fight with these nations who are punishing Israel and that he will bring them retribution and he will bring them restoration so what do we do with all this? We see the servant of the Lord and we see this huge role that he's playing and we think that, oh man, like who, who was this exactly? Well, I have, I have to clarify 
that the servant of the Lord, the, the purpose of Isaiah inserting this in Isaiah chapter 49 is not to advertise an open position. Hey, we're hiring a servant of the Lord. I hope one of you guys can make it. You know, there's a, there's a physical and, you know, there's background chest, but you, you might be able to do it. No, this is not, to, this is not a help wanted advertisement. For, the, for this, it's God saying, this is a help coming advertisement that I'm going to provide this servant. And God reserved the servant role for his son, Jesus. Notice this in, um, if you read John chapter 17, verses 4 through 5, I'll read it to you. But Jesus proves by his actions that he is doing what God is sending him to do. And he proves to be the perfect servant that God needs to bring total restoration. John 17, verse 4 says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ is that special servant of the Lord. Christ is that arrow in the quiver that God sends to, exact, to accomplish His exact specific purposes. And most of all, God sends His Son to show His ultimate faithfulness. That when Jesus appeared on the scene, born of a virgin, on, you know, on Christmas morning, that's God saying to the world, I have not forgotten about you. I still have a plan of redemption that I'm churning for you. I will save you. So God remembers us. But the onus, if, the, the, the um, burden is now on us to say, do we believe God? Do we believe that He's faithful? God has shown that He's thinking about us. God has shown us that He has a plan of salvation. Even if we're not ethnic Jews, part of this country, He's saying, I'm going to bring you a light. So will we remember Him? And that's the truth for us if we're Christians or if we're not Christians. For those who are in Christ, think about these things. That in Christ, God will show Himself faithful to you, number one. Number two, God will restore you. All those things that are broken in your life, all those family members that will that you've lost and all the sadness that you might have endured on the, on the last day, God will give you great um, restoration in himself. But also number three, God will never forget you. Many uh, have learned in Sunday school, the, the Bible verse, Hebrews 13, five, which says that God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. So God never forgets those who are his. Number four, God will also forget your sins. Isn't that a great thing to remember that God won't forget you, but He'll forget your sins if you repent of them. In Isaiah chapter 43, um, verse 23, God says this, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Often when we're confronted with the news that, oh, this is a holy God. Oh, He's been paying attention to the things I've done. Oh, I've broken... Lots of rules from him. How can I ever be reconciled from him? This is how. You come to God and you repent of your sins and you will learn, um, number five, that God will make a covenant with you to be faithful with you, to be faithful toward you when you believe on Christ. And for those who are not in Christ, for those who don't know the Lord Jesus, remember this. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, remember this that God will make Christ as a light to you. God will make Christ as a salvation to you. 
Jesus is your light. And Jesus is your salvation. He's intending to illuminate you with that light for your need to God, for your, uh, of your need for God. And He is also there to provide the salvation that you've been seeking so that you can rest your hope on God's faithfulness, not on these uncertain, changing, unstable grounds of our culture and our world. So let's pray. Lord God, You are faithful to us. In so many words, illustrations, and demonstrations of Your faithfulness throughout history, Lord, we're convinced that You are faithful. And Lord, even in Scripture, You tell us that even if we are faithless, even if we are disobedient, that You remain faithful to us. So, Lord, let us cling to You. Let us not rest our hope in anything else but You. Let us come close to You and find in You comfort and the endurance and the strength that we need to carry on, believing that, Lord, You've committed Yourself to Your people. And so, for Lord, for any of us who are um, watching, who don't have a relationship with Christ, who cannot say that God is committed to me, that they would simply um, reach out to You and they would cry out and say, Lord, I want to believe in You. I want to be faithful to You. Will You be faithful to me? Forgive me of the sins that I've committed and wash me clean in the sacrifice and in the blood of Christ. Help me to um, believe on Him for Him to be a covenant for me. And so, Lord, we all give thanks to You as we continue to worship. Let us consider and meditate on Your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us, or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.